Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. G'day guys and welcome back to the Dylan Friends Podcast. This week, I have another incredible guest with an incredible story, David the Ox Schwartz. David is a former AFL footballer for the Melbourne Demons. He played 173 games and kicked 244 goals. And I'm telling you now, he was a genuine superstar. At 20 years of age, he took more marks than Wayne Carey in a year and was on the verge of exploding into one of the game's greats before unfortunately being struck down with three ACL injuries in under 12 months. Three ACL injuries in under 12 months and was back playing after his first reconstruction after 14 weeks on the sidelines. Apart from his AFL career, the Ox has had a lot of up and downs in his life, including seeing his own father being murdered in front of him at a young age and battling a gambling addiction that saw him lose an estimated $5 million in his AFL career. Now back on his feet and absolutely thriving in the media, he celebrates 15 years off gambling and has a lot of lessons for us to learn from. It was a super powerful chat, and I hope you get out of it as much as I did. Let's go. Welcome to the Dylan Friends Podcast. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Strap yourselves in for some lighthearted and wholesome fun. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. David Schwartz. David, thank you so much for coming on the Dylan Friends Podcast, mate, and uh, welcome to the show. Now, Dylan, my pleasure, and really looking forward to the chat. I'm not sure if you remember this, but um, I first met you a few years ago, actually, uh, when you came to Carlton, um, and you did a chat there for the boys, and it's honestly, I'm not just saying this, mate, but it, it was really incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I, I didn't blink the whole chat, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of it today, but Firstly, thank you for that, and I've always wanted to have a bit of a follow-up just because I had so many questions, and honestly, I wanted to hear it again. So, do, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. We're up in the uh, old grandstand uh, up at uh, Princess Park, and um, I've done, done a few uh, of the clubs. Um, uh, I was doing all the clubs at one stage, but I'd probably done uh, half a dozen that year, and um, yeah, I was keen to get down to Carlton, obviously. Carlton have been struggling for form for a long time, and uh, I knew you had a couple of uh, players that had gambling uh, gambling issues. And when you're sitting in there and you're actually delivering the uh, the presentation that I did, you can you can pick up on you know who might be battling, and I was well aware of a couple. So um, yeah, no, I remember it, um, and uh, spoke to a lot of players afterwards, and remained friends with a couple of them. So no, no, that was um, no, it was a good, it was a good chat, and um, actually the group were pretty attentive that day and I, um, I remember meeting you there too Dill and uh, yeah it's normally the, it's normally the way with most clubs when you go there you you get you know a lot of respect and you know they seem to listen and and take it all in which is great yeah it was incredible mate and I uh, like you said there wasn't a there wasn't anyone uh, you know feeding off every single word you were saying it's an incredible story and I can't wait to get into it um, one thing you didn't talk about though that day which in reflection I've gone back and done some research was was mate, I didn't realise how much of a superstar you actually were. <laughs> well, no, no. So, so the talk, so the talk I do is isn't about what I used to be able to do on the footy field. The, 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 talk, the talk I do is the destruction that I caused whilst playing footy, and then and then post footy. So, look, I'm not there to blow my trumpet. I'm there just to to try to try and help people um, if they are going down that path of gambling and you know going too far with gambling. Because the one message I do want to get across to to everybody, I'm I'm not an you know I'm not a, an evangelist. I'm not standing up here saying don't gamble. You know whatever you do, I just I just like to inform people that if there are warning signs that you know gambling doesn't work for everybody, and I don't want that you know that person sitting in front of me to become a statistic like I was. So um, that that's the message. Gambling works for most of us. It just didn't work for me, and doesn't work for some of us. So I'm just trying to cut those people off from falling off the cliff before yeah. they get there, which is what we're trying to do. Yeah, of course, mate, and I appreciate that. And I suppose one thing that I probably like to get across with you, though, I think that that's probably a chapter of your life. Like, it's not who you are. There's so many other facets here that um, are incredible mm. to talk about. And I suppose we will touch on the gambling stuff a bit later. But I do want to touch on probably the start of how it all happened for you because it is an incredible story. And I, I feel like you know I still got so many questions about it. Um, how did it all start, mate? Getting to getting to the demons. It, was it 15 years old you first got there? Yeah. So I, I arrived there as a 14 year old. Um 
Uh, I'd gone through the schoolboy system, which was um, like a, an under-15 competition, um, and I was I was zoned to Melbourne. So back in those days, uh, there was zoned. So I ended up at Melbourne, and then um, as a 15-year-old, I played under-19s, and um, it just progressed from there. So um, pretty much from the age of 14, I, I knew that if I was going to play VFL footy, AFL footy, it was going to be with the Melbourne Footy Club. So... Um, now I was ready to go and uh, got the opportunity from Sunbury and you know when it doesn't matter which club knocks on your door when you get you know that sort of interest you you're pretty chuffed and you you want to work pretty hard and you know my dream was to play footy I would have loved to have played for Hawthorne because I broke for them but um, you know the minute I signed with the Melbourne Footy Club it was it was red and blue for me and I love the club and you know I was very grateful for the opportunity to be down there. So that was in 1991. And then in 1992, you've taken some time off footy and you actually went and worked in the mines, was it? So no, So what happened was in 1991, I, got, I played round one, uh, made my debut uh, over in Subiaco against West Coast. Uh, played the following, uh, we got beaten by 80 points and then played the following week against Fitzroy, won by 150 points and got dropped. Um, Kevin Dyson replaced me. Then it took me about 10 weeks to get back in. Uh, played against Destin and uh, played six. Anyway, played six games that year and I quit. I just, you know, I thought I could have been given more opportunity. John Northey was my coach. I, you know, I was just a yeah. selfish, <laughs> selfish eighteen-year-old. Uh, I dropped out of school, didn't finish off year twelve, and then I had a mate living up at Nullumbai, up in Gove. So I headed up there and I was going to become a miner. And I just thought, gee whiz, I don't think I want to be working underground. <laughs> and you know, the tunnels aren't that tall, and I'm six foot four and. You know, footy money was pretty good. And anyway, mum said, look, come back, go to school, see what happens with footy. So I knuckled down. I got back in. I did year 12 at Sunbury High after being put into Melbourne High with the footy club. And I had a great year. I just, you know, I felt really comfortable in 92. I made a lot of good friends in year 12 and um, I played some good footy. Um, I think I came third in the BNF that year. And so, so that was the start of... That was the real start of people understanding. I also got an opportunity because um, Earl Spalding had left. And um, so there was a position at centre-half forward. So he went to Carlton. Um, and then things just opened up for me. So, yeah, 92 was a great year. I played every game. And uh, as I said, I kind of um, established myself in the ruck with Jimmy and playing centre-half forward. So, uh, yeah, that was, the, that was the first time I felt really comfortable at the Melbourne Footy Club. And I suppose in 94, that would have been your best, you know, your sort of breakout year, I suppose. You were 105 kilos, if I'm right there, and you could genuinely turn on a dime. I was watching some of your uh, highlights last night, and, mate, I'm not, I'm not trying to pump you up, but, like, people have been comparing yourself to, like, a modern-day Charlie Kernow. <laughs> um, look, I played a lot of basketball, so I always thought that, you know, I always wanted to get in the basketball path, and then... Footy, footy was just easier for me. It just became, you know, I'd, I'd won, I think I'd won seven or eight league best and fairest in a row. Um, I was always bigger than most kids, but the one thing I'd prided myself in was my leap and my agility. So I'd be able to, you know, I was dunking at 14, um, um, but I was always heavy. Like I was, you know, I played, I played, at, I, I debuted at 103, um, you know, and I played after knee reconstructions at 122. So I, w- I was really heavy. Um, but, yeah, I was able to move. Um, but unfortunately for us, we had we had knee problems throughout the family. Mum had a couple of Ricos. My sister had a couple of Ricos. I ended up having three. So I was always probably bound to come a cropper, and I did in a pre-season practice match at the end of 94. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of changed my footy from then on. But 94... Dylan, as you were saying, was, you know, the year that really set me up. It's, you know, I took the most marks in the comp and kicked 60 More goals. More than Wayne Carey. Yeah, I had, I had a good year that year. And it just, you know, things just started to evolve. And I, 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 in 94 towards the end, I found footy really easy. Um, I just found as though that I had time and space. And it was just, I just knew that if I had an opponent, um, that I was going to go okay against them. And... From probably round 22 of that year, I kicked nine, nine against Sydney and played against Mark Bays, and who was considered a really good backman. And then I played um, in the first final against um, the Western Bulldog. Uh, sorry, against Carlton, and I had Peter Dean and Sauce, and I had a really good day that day. And then played against Danny Southern 
um, for the Western Bulldogs, and we had a great day that day. And then I had Glenn Jakovic the following week uh, in the prelim, where we got beaten and didn't have the best day, but you know held my own. So, you know, I think that year I played against West Coast a couple of times, and I got the three votes once, and Jacko got uh, a couple of votes, and you know that's that was the kind of competition you wanted against the really good players. Yeah, of course, mate. And on this show. Um, I know you're a big fan, but we do talk about bunnies a lot in this show. Um, Adam Zampa yep. said that his was Virat Kohli. Mine was Brett Delidio. Um, just always yep. had it, had always had his measure, no matter what. And uh, I feel like yeah. all those names mentioned, um, you had them covered in that year especially. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. Ellie Fam XX. One of the, probably the heartbreaking thing was in the next season coming in was probably when you've had your first um, incident with the knee. Yeah, so I went up for a market at, at um, a training drill, and I was really fit and healthy. I'd, I'd actually got down to 101 kilos, which was, you know, so I'd, I'd come in really, really fit and healthy. And anyway, I went up for a market and came down and popped a knee um, just before just before Australia Day weekend. And um, and I didn't think much of it anyway. We had the scans, and yeah, I needed a rico. So I had a rico. Uh, within three weeks, I was full training. I was turning, I was jumping. Uh, within seven weeks, I was doing one-on-ones. I was doing the whole lot, and we decided to pull the trigger at week 14 and played against Collingwood on Queen's birthday and kicked three goals. And I thought, gee, I'm back here. And um, the following week, um, played against Sydney and kicked a couple and then uh, went to turn Andrew Dunkley inside out and, and did another knee. So, yeah, that was a real wake-up call for me. Um, so went back to the back to training and... Started working pretty hard again and waited another year and then came back and did it again. And I thought, oh, I'm in real trouble here. Anyway, so we eventually after three, we just said, right, we've got to change surgeons and change tact here. And so we did and we changed surgeons, went and saw a bloke named John Bartlett, who was just a star and and um, changed my body. I thought I'd got to be like a plugger and, you know, more of a full forward type of player because the agility style is just not conducive to being able to, you know, stay healthy. So... Put on a bit of weight, um, you know, went to 123 kilos and yeah, just just changed my game into a more of a ruckman, into more trying to do more uh, for the team rather than the individual stuff. So, yeah, had to sacrifice a fair bit just to get back out and play. It's it's absolutely crazy though, mate, just to, to think about that and just that injuries of three ACLs in 12 months. It's, it's so strange for me to comprehend that because I think... You know, since I was playing footy, and I suppose you know anyone in the modern day knows now that a, a knee's twelve months, no matter what. So that's one knee per twelve yeah. months. You know, I've seen so many guys um, do ACLs at um, AFL clubs, and the rehabilitation is so strenuous. You know, you got guys now going overseas um, in America and Ireland to do all this special rehabilitation. To think that you came back and were training after four weeks, and then played within fourteen. Like it's unheard of. Yeah, it is. Um, but we didn't have the we didn't have the, um, the the research behind it. So the only the only piece of evidence we had was from a skier in Austria when we had a cadaver because he died in a skiing accident, and he had a reconstruction. Um, and seven months later, he passed away. And at seven months, his leg was at eighty five percent. So they they believe that at seven at, you know that period that that's. You know, at eighty-five percent, if you can get your leg at eighty-five percent within that period, it's a it's a great result. So that was the only information we had. Um, subsequently, we now know that you need you need pretty much nine months uh, before you can even get over sixty percent. So there, you know, there's new evidence, there's new procedures. I ended up having twenty-three knee operations in that period, um, just with cleanups and ITB tightenings, and you know, I had a I had a rebuild of one of my legs because I'd also had a broken femur and. So it was a lot of surgery, a lot of downtime, um, and a lot of time for the mind to wander. So, um, and that's kind of where my gambling really took off, and you know started to get a hold of me. And I didn't even know it was happening at the time. I just thought it was good fun and something that I could do whilst I was injured. Yeah, for sure, mate. And I suppose we will get to that um, shortly. But I suppose just with those injuries, like twenty-three surgeries is incredible. Like I had. I had nine surgeries in my eight-year career, and a lot of those surgeries were sort of like impactual injuries, so like, you know, shoulders and um, ankles and things like this, but I suppose something that I can probably relate to, not as as serious as yours, but in my last season, I had some really bad um, calf injuries, so I just kept restraining the same tendon in my calf, and I think those injuries where, 
you know, I suppose a little bit like your knee where you can be feeling so good but you just don't have the confidence in your body. Like you got back and played 100 games, you played in a grand final and won a BNF after three knee recos. How did you get that confidence back? Because I know a lot of players don't get that confidence back. Like I struggled to to run just because I didn't want to run at full pace because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get through with it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, you, you know, I think it comes down to your personality as well. Like anybody that knows me knows that I'm the most optimistic person they've probably ever come against, come up against. Um, you know, even Neil Danaher, we did an optimism-pessimism test at the footy club uh, where all the players, you know, can do this test. Because you wanted to find out what, what sort of group we had and... Anyway, the the tester comes back and says, Neil, you are the most realist bloke we've got on. You know, so he knows when he's good and he's bad. And so so Neil got tested and he was the most realist <laughs> yeah. of all the players um, and staff. And then there was a couple of blokes that were really pessimistic. And they said, we've got one bloke who's tested off the charts. And everyone looked at me because they knew it was going to be me. And it was me. I, you know, I just tested, you know, really optimistic to a point of detriment that... You know that I would think that everything was fine when when it wasn't. So it's it's almost delusional in that everything can't be that good and can't be that great all the time. But I used to always be able to see the this the, you know the sun between the clouds, and that I think that was one of my strengths of getting back. That I was always believing that you know everything was going to be okay. So it, whilst it was probably dangerous at times, I think it was my greatest strength that you know, the ability to overcome just about anything that was put in front of you. Yeah, it's very interesting actually to hear that. Like, I'm one of my favourite things is being positive and I feel like I've definitely learnt that. Like, it wasn't something that was natural for me but over the years, I've definitely found that positivity side of things yeah. um, and how it yeah, can it's change. It, it, like, if it's not inbred in you, it, like, it's really difficult to, you know, to see the, see the upside in everything and, you know, my glass is always half full, it's never half empty and um, I try and instill that on my kids that doesn't matter how bad it is, it's never as bad as you think it is. And But I've probably got to teach them also, it's never as good as you think it is either. So just, you know, you've got to balance it out. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of my favourite coaches, Brendan Bolton, who you probably would have met that day, always used to say, you're never going yep. as good as you think, you're never going as bad as you think. But we'll move on, yeah, mate. Yeah. Um, you obviously moved on from that and were able to win, as we said before, the BNF uh, with the Ds in 1999. Um, and then after that, you played in a grand final against Essendon. Um, obviously... You didn't get the chocolates that day, but how was it playing on the big stage? Yeah, it was great. You know, we, we came up against a formidable opponent in the Bombers. Like, they, they probably should have won it in 99, 2000 and 2001. They, for that list that they had, they underachieved, I, I think. Um, they, were, they were such a good side. They were so balanced. They had toughness. They had experience. They had good youth. You know, they were a really good team. Um, yeah, we were probably just a bit underwhelmed. Uh, sorry, overwhelmed and under underprepared is probably not the right term but we were certainly may have underestimated the ferocity that they were going to come out with so you know I think they learned a hard lesson in 99 being you know beaten in that prelim to the Blues and um, you know they were breathing fire so you know they almost went through the season undefeated um, you know they, they were a pretty good side but to run out on that day um, you know you never forget that that roar when you go out um, the game itself, I've pretty much deleted from the memory because we were beaten convincingly. Um, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was one hell of a ride. It was great to get there. It would have been great to win it, but you know, I, I was really proud of proud of the side to win the prelim, um, to get through, and you know, just to just to have a shot at having a chance of winning it. And they're not easy to win. You know, they're really tough to they're really tough to win, and you know, to be a premiership player would have been the ultimate, but. We didn't get there, and you got to move on. And being involved in footy still these days, obviously in the media, who are your favourite players to watch now or in now? The past? Yeah, now. Oh, I like the I like the athletic agility type. I like the Kernos and um, I like the you know the players that will sit on you know I like the Jeremy Howe type. So you know I like players that actually make it happen. That that are willing to take a risk. Um, that aren't the norm. You know, I like a Jordan Degoe. You know, I like someone who's a who's a little bit different. Um, I'm not into choir boys. I, I I don't like the the fact that everyone has to be, you know, the the same and you know straight down the path. I, I like the I like the rap bags. Um, I like players that actually are willing to put it on the line and you know talk it up a bit and 
and then uh, see if they can deliver. So, you know, yeah, you know, a player like Jordan Ngoi and, you know, Dusty and, you know, players are a little bit different. Uh, I think they're really, 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 you know, even the Toby Green types. Yeah. I think they're really important to the game and, you know, they're the ones that people come to see and come to watch and, you know, my my, th- my theory and my motto in life was always about the forwards. You know, the, the forwards get paid the big money because they deliver uh, at the at the big time. Anyone can play back. Anyone <laughs> can stand behind a player and hit it from hit it away. But it's the blokes that are actually making the play. They're the ones that are gonna that, that are most important to your side. One player I feel like you would love, um, and if you you don't yet, I feel like you will after this and take some time to to watch him play. And he doesn't get the credit that he's probably due at the moment because he is playing at the Giants and sometimes I don't get that sort of um, that sort of notoriety. But Harry Himmelberg, I see a lot of similarities between yeah. you guys. I know that he's not as big as what you were, but this yeah, no, guy, he can him, turn. Yeah, i him a lot, actually. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he has a go, doesn't he? he um, and he's got some tricks. He's, he, got uh, he's certainly got some tricks. He's got a good set of mitts and um, yeah, he backs himself in. And I, I think if you, if you back yourself in... Um, you determine your course. So you know, you know, if you if you're willing to take the play on, and you know, the old rule is if you're third man up, you've got to make you've got to make it count. Otherwise, you're going to look like a fool. So I love a player being the third man up in in the contest and leaving his man at the ground. If he gets the easy goal, well, bad luck. But if you make the contest, you save you save a goal. So I like the risk versus reward, and, and probably that comes back to my nature that you know you you put it on the line and and. Um, and the rewards will pay for itself over and over and over again. Yeah, that's it, mate. Now, I do want to sort of have a bit of a change of topic and get into some other things that have happened in your life and your journey. Um, I understand that you witnessed a lot of tragedy sort of growing up and there were some some factors that had big impacts on your life. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, 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 yeah no worries. Um, obviously, your father um, at a young age, um, I know that there's some, some big impacts there that you know you witnessed. Yeah, so so dad was murdered um, in front of me when I was eight. Um, yeah, mum and dad had separated. Uh, dad, dad had been seeing a new um, lady who was separated from her husband, and her husband didn't agree with that and came in. Uh, I was staying up at dad's place up in Mount Beauty, and we were about to go fishing, and um, he came in that night, and uh, I woke up, and dad had been shot. And um, yeah, it was. You know, when you're eight years of age, you don't know what's happening. You don't even, you know, there's not a lot we remember when we're eight. But, you know, that day's etched in my mind forever that, you know, you wake up and you know your dad's dead and you've got to get out of the room and because um, she was fighting with him at the at the foot of the bed. And so I got out through the brisk breakfast servery and um, alerted the neighbours next door and they called the police and anyway, he ended up um, committing suicide. And it was just a tragedy all round. It was just... It just wasn't fair. It wasn't reasonable. Um, it's it's just something that a family shouldn't have to deal with. And, you know, I was probably a bit young to fully comprehend it at the time. My sister was a couple of years older, so she, she understood the gravity of it. I always just thought Dad was going to come back. and um, But death is final. Um, you don't come back. So, um, yeah, I learnt very early that um, you got to you got to have good family. you got to have you know, great people around you. And, you know, thankfully for, for my mum, she had um, she had two sisters and a brother that were just so supportive. And, you know, we lived in a little country town in Beechworth and the family just rallied and we um, we protected each other. And, you know, I, had my, I was forever at my auntie's place and my uncle's place just, you know, growing up with all our cousins. So, um, yeah, I learned very quickly, you've got to be resilient and you've got to be tough. And... Um, but the one thing we didn't do as a family and, you know, regrettably, we never grieved and we never spoke about it. Um, you know, it took me 20 odd years after dad had died before we actually spoke about his death. And I think for most people now who suffer, you know, a great loss like that, you just got to talk about it. You got to, you actually got to discuss it. It's, um, very therapeutic and, and helps you grieve a lot better. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was a really sad time and, but she was, you know, that's, you know, that's uh, 40 years ago now. It's a, it's a long, long time. Oh, mate, it's, it's, yeah, it's terrible. And I'm sure your father would be very proud of the person you are today, mate, and what you've, what you've been through and how you've overcome it. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. Be yourself, fam. With the gambling, um, you know, you're so open about what's happened with that in your life. Um, when do you 
think that that sort of started for you? Like, how did you get introduced to punting? How did you get introduced to gambling? Yeah, I, I was 14, um, almost the same time I started playing footy at Melbourne. Um, I headed on down to Mooney Valley Trots. I got asked to go with a mate. I'd never had a bet before, and we put on a bet and it won. And I, I think that was probably the, the problem that my first bet I ever had, I put on um, $4.50 and got back $60, and... I think the adrenaline just went through the body, Dylan, and uh, I just wanted to i wanted to keep chasing, and I did. And um, from that day on to the age of 32, I gambled every day of my life. It just it just engulfed me, and I just loved the feeling of when I was winning. And you know, I've never been I've never I've never had drugs, or I've never been addicted to alcohol or any of that. But I can imagine that for those that do suffer the same addiction, it's just the it's just that thrill and it's just that feeling that was going through my body at the time that was that was so electric so yeah it started at 14 and you know you couple that in with a good wage at the footy club and um the access to you know high profile people who owned horses you know through members and sponsors and so forth it was just a you know volatile cocktail that just exploded on me and then coupled that with injuries and spare time it just snowballed and before I knew it I just you know I'd lost a lot and I was chasing and you know when you when you start chasing and yeah it's not good it can catch up on you pretty quickly oh buddy it's, it's you know it's scary even thinking about that for me like I've never been um like when I was younger I'd obviously bet with mates and stuff but as I said earlier since that day you came out to the club um and you know for me in my past a lot of people have been affected by gambling it was just something that stuck with me so much and the way you sort of told your story which you are again today um i appreciate it so much and um i'm just hoping that other people can can get that yeah, themselves. I, I think within footy clubs too dill um not, and and cricket clubs and you know i've spoken to nrl and i used to do all the nrl all cricket australia it's 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 the same sort of um mentality you know the, the one thing that gambling does it it's not it doesn't dictate uh, who the person is but what happens with elite athletes is there's so many behaviors that are similar you know you're really driven you know you're competitive um you, you've got you've got high levels of testosterone you know you're in team environment a lot of them in team environments a lot of money a lot of sponsors a lot of spare time a lot of group you know group togetherness so to become a problem gambler you tick a lot so many boxes and it doesn't matter how you know discipline you think you are that mob mentality that group mentality can seriously take over really quickly so um you know yeah i hope the message that i do give to you know the sports people that you know all the warning signs i hope that i hope that it does get thrown i'm really glad it got through to you and as i said to you at the start of the podcast that you know i still speak to a couple of the players that i spoke into that meeting and we have constant dialogue about you know, life, not just, just not just about gambling, but about decision making and about, you know, you know, certain circumstances and certain examples of, you know, how and why and when. And so, you know, the more we speak about it, the better chance we have of cutting it off before it becomes a real issue. Do you think that the AFL does enough to combat gambling? Like, I suppose for me, you know, I... It's, I'm probably split in two minds. Like, I think it's up to the person as well, but I suppose there is other outlets that can help, you know, sway those Yeah, benefits. look, I think, I think you're right. I think you're spot on. Um, you know, the individual has to take responsibility. You know, we can't, we can't cuddle these and smother these, you know, people for their whole entire careers. You've got to remember, these aren't boys. These are men. They've yeah. had more education than, you know, the average Joe Blow who's in the normal workforce. So... You know that they are educated on a on a yearly basis, more than more than once a year. So the message would be certainly getting to them. Whether they take that message in or not, I don't know. But I certainly believe the AFL do a hell of a lot. It's a double-edged sword, though, because the problem you've got is that the governing body takes so much from gambling agencies, so that, so the money generated on gambling they can get a slice of. So whilst you're doing that, you're kind of selling your soul in some ways. My biggest issue is with gambling advertising. I just think that we're saturated with it. I think our kids have become um, so entrenched and used to it. And, and, I, and I tell this story because I'll never forget it. My son was uh, 11 years of age and uh, he's now 15. 
And he said, Dad, Tigers win tonight. And I said, yeah, I know, they're pretty good. You know, they got, you know, Dusty and they got bloody Deledio and got all these good players. He said, no, 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 Dad, they're $1.13. And I thought, Far out. Mm, it's not because they've got good players. It's because the bookies say that, say that they um, that they should win. And I, and I think that's when they normalise it through gambling, um, the, the gambling agencies have won. And, and that's purely through advertising. And until government change, legislation with gambling advertising, we're going to continue to see gambling advertising everywhere, post-match, pre-match, sometimes during the match, um, which is a real concern. Yeah, it's bloody scary. Um, when did you know that you had a problem in your in your uh, gambling? Uh, I reckon in the first time I kind of got the gravity of the situation was in 1997. Um, I'd, I'd, sorry, 1998. I'd got, gone to the end of my four-year contract, my first four-year contract, 95, uh, 6, 7 and 8, and I'd blown all my money, but I'd also blown $200,000 in equity in my house. And I thought, oh, shivers, where did that go? And then signed another good contract in 99 and 2000, and by that stage I was playing catch-up and it was too late. All right. It was too late. I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't turn up. Actually, I should have. I could have been able to turn around, but I didn't have the discipline, and I didn't have the understanding that I was not in a good place. And back in these as well, you were earning really good money, and you had a property. It was in Q. Uh, I bought a house in Campbell. I, I was earning. I was earning four hundred thousand a year in ninety five, six, seven, and eight, and I got a pay rise on top of that. So the money was good. I was doing footy show. I don't know. I was probably earning five or six hundred thousand. Far out. So the money was big. The money was really big. What are some of the most, you know, outrageous stories that, you know, maybe of some winnings and some losses in, in oh, sitting? I won, I won just under 700000 one weekend. Um, then I won a couple of hundred thousand the following weekend. So I had nearly a million dollar fortnight. Uh, bought a house in Dawson Avenue in Brighton. Paid 1.35 for it. Uh, I had to sell it 16 weeks later uh, for 1.6 because I couldn't afford it. Uh, that house sold a few months ago for $8 million. <laughs> oh, um, my God. Um, I was, won a house and land package at Crown. Took me 13 hours to lose it. Just silly things like that. Like I just I just couldn't stop. Didn't matter what I did. I just The money became irrelevant. It was more the thrill of punting that, that got me going. And, you know, I, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but on May the 3rd of this year, it's 15 years since I've given up. And... Um, in the in the fifteen year, I, I I couldn't be any calmer. Uh, I'm in control. I've had to rebuild everything. It's taken me twelve years to pay off all my debt. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm in a really good position now, only because of you know giving up fifteen years ago. If I if I'd given up ten years ago, instead of fifteen, I'd be still probably three years away from paying off debt. If I'd given up, you know, twenty years ago. I would have been a mile in front. And the only ones that miss out on that are my kids, and that's the unfortunate thing. But they understand, uh, but they've told me, don't go back, Dad, because uh, you've got to leave us something when you, <laughs> when you do exit. And uh, we actually like the dad that you are now because you're nice and calm. Yeah. How much money do you think? It'd be hard to think about, but how much money do you think you have lost over the years? I reckon four to five million in, in cash. Um, and I reckon I've lost out on the. I, I reckon I've spoken to the kids about this. If I didn't gamble, I'd be worth twenty to thirty million now. Wow! Because the money would have the money would have capitalised. Yeah, it goes. And, yeah. You know, I had I had properties, and you know, yeah, I've always, you know, I've always believed in property. And if I had to put all my money into property, because I know I've got another an ex teammate that did exactly what I did that didn't gamble, and he's now got seven homes. Yeah. Wow. All paid off. Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah, so so the, the, that's what you miss out on. And but like you said, mate, credit to yourself. You have paid everything back, and you're on your feet now. And and obviously on three AW. Yeah, doing and, and look, that doesn't happen. Deal without it's it's hard work. But I've also had good people in my corner. Like you know, I've been I've been lucky that you know whilst whilst I've gambled, I haven't I haven't done the dirty on anybody. I've always had respect for you know my teammates and. You know, I never, you know, the, the hardest criticism I ever cop was, you know, taking Travis Johnson and Daniel Ward down the wrong path where the truth to be known is I probably gambled with Travis two or three times in my life. I probably gambled with Daniel Ward once in my life. Yet because I was the older player, 
I was coupled into that and I was seen as the bad influence. I, I never gambled with people from my footy club. Um, I always did it with, with um, uh, by myself or with um, with other punters that I that I grown up with. So that was that was probably the hardest thing that that, that I got associated with. But you know, with that as a leader of the footy club, you you got to you got to cop that criticism. You got to be able to you got to be able to deal with that and 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 move on. And you know, Travi and Daniel Ward, I still speak to you know regularly about what they're going through. And um, you know, we've. You know, it just happened the three of us had issues along the way and, you know, I'm through mine and I think Wardy's through his and Travis uh Travis pretty close to getting through his, so it's all it's all on the up for um for us three. No, it's fantastic, mate. Um talking about owing people money and owing bookmakers money and, and these sort of things, um, without going into, you know, too much detail about it, um, that you don't want to how does that work in terms of like owing people money, owing these people money, how do you pay that back? Um, obviously, in movies, like it looks pretty scary sometimes. Is it like it is in the movies? Yeah, it's 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 exactly like that, and sometimes worse. Right. Um, uh, bookmakers and bad people, whether it's the mafia or whether it's organised crime, they don't like being lied to. Um, the problem that punters have, Dylan, is we lie, and uh, we think we can get away with it. Um, uh, the first point I want to make, don't borrow money. Yep. Second point is don't borrow money of bad people. Uh, third point is don't ever lie when you do borrow money because it'll catch up with you. And, um, yeah, it's it just, you know, I was I was kind of lucky that, that when I started to borrow, um, I was uh, kind of at the end, at the end of my, you know, punting tether and, I only borrowed a little bit for a short amount of time and I was able to get it back. But I, I saw the urgency from those that I borrowed off to get it back without delay and, you know, I respected that and they respected me for getting it back. But, yeah, you've got to be very, very careful and, you know, and it's not only paying back to it. It's then you can get yourself in a position where, you know, you they might be asking for information. And that's the biggest fear for the for the league in that, you know, players get themselves into a position and then they, they're compromised by having to give out information and, you know, then the integrity of the sport falls over. So, yeah, you just don't get mixed up with those people. And if you do, you get out of it as quickly as you can. It's just, yeah, it's, you know, it's not going to end happy, that's for sure. Yeah, that was actually always a scary um, meeting once a year that, you know, you'd sit through at a club was about that sort of integrity in terms of, you know, having to hand your phone in pre-game, um, all these sort of things, like... I suppose for me, being a bit naive and young at that stage, like you just don't realise that that stuff actually happens. Oh yeah, it does. Absolutely, it does. And you know, life's changed enormously too, Dylan. Since I gave up gambling, the internet and and online gambling now can happen. Like when I was punting, that wasn't around. So that's how fast this is advancing. Technology's changing at you know a million miles an hour. It's just. You know, there's no slowing it down. So, you know, I'm thankful that I wasn't around during this technological age where I could have been betting, you know, whilst in the car or, you know, whilst sitting in the car park at training or, you know, on the way home or, you know, whilst at training. You know, it, it just, I'm really thankful that that's not around because the temptation for me would have been too great. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. For swag merch, check out dylanfriends.com forward slash shop. I suppose if there is people out there that are listening to this podcast and that hear a lot of you speak a lot, um, do you have a message for someone that might be struggling with gambling or someone that is trying to get off? What would be your advice to them? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. If you're honest with yourself, you know where you're at. You know, if you're borrowing money to gamble, if you are lying about your gambling, if you're lying about where you are and who you're with and who you're talking to because of gambling, um, you've got, you know... You, you, you've got a serious issue. If you can be honest with yourself and look yourself in the mirror and say, "Shivers, you know, I'm I'm in trouble here. I need help." Um, it goes a long way to actually getting you to where you need to be. If you can't be honest with yourself, you can't be honest with others. And the one thing about punters is, we are compulsive bullshit artists. We don't stop lying because, not because we want to hurt people, Dylan, but because we are having so many stories going on in our lives. We've got half a dozen stories happening um, and we're trying to marry that up and become our become our reality. 
you know, and in the end, you start to believe your own bullshit, and that's one of the big issues that um, that you have. So, if I can leave anyone with a message, be honest, and it'll it'll pay off in dividends you would never believe. It'll just and it'll make it'll make life easy, and it'll make life calm, and it'll take away stress and all the other mental health issues that are associated with it. Yeah, exactly, man. I think from from my point of view, um, you know, I've had a couple of uh, mates, you know come to me in the past and tell me about some things that you know I just didn't know that that was going on for them and I think back to thinking like you know fuck if I had maybe picked up on these things earlier and helped them out with it a bit earlier I suppose like maybe that would have helped but for you like yeah, how may, did someone may, come to you, you and you, yeah you can't look at it like that you know you, you've just got to you've got to wait for you got to wait for someone to approach you and if you know if you think it's necessary you approach them but you know until that person with the addiction is ready to talk doesn't matter what you do you know they've got to be ready and as we said right at the start you've got to take responsibility for your own actions and until that person is willing to get help even if you have an intervention with them even if you sit down with six of their brothers and cousins and uncles and you sit and you eyeball him or her and say right it's time to go we're going to rehab if that person doesn't say yes the intervention doesn't work so the person still has to agree and still has to buy in and if that person, because some people don't want to get better, some people don't want help. They just want to live their life and do what they're doing and and um, and be left alone. So, you know what what you perceive as being normal isn't often what is normal to them. So, um, yeah, as I said, personal responsibility um, will be the catalyst for anybody getting better. I appreciate that, mate, and thanks for being so open and honest about uh, those troubles. I'm sure you know. Obviously, you've already helped so many people to this day, but. Hopefully that um, that can help a few more. I want to talk about your media career because obviously you're a superstar in the media and obviously one of my heroes in the media. Um, when did you when did you decide that you wanted to become you know into the media? Was it playing days? Was it forced because of things that you wanted to do, or was it there a genuine passion there? Uh, look, I, I did a I did a bachelor of science at Deakin and then um, I studied master uh, did a masters of marketing at Melbourne Uni and I kind of liked the uni life, but um, when I got injured, I started doing a lot of, as you know, Dylan, when you're out injured, you've got to go to a lot of functions and a lot of um, uh, a lot of rooms and a lot of sponsors um, because no one else can do them. So you go and fill that in. I, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed speaking in front of people. I love dealing with, um, you know, the high end of the Melbourne Footy Club, you know, whether it was the legal fraternity or the accountants. Anyway, so I got a bit of a taste. And then Triple M asked me to do a bit of stuff. So I did that. And then I got asked to go on the footy show which was nerve-wracking. You know, that's when the footy show was rating a million people on a Thursday night. Yeah. Um, so I started doing that. And it just snowballed from there. I, when I when I quit in 2002, I got asked to go and do Triple M. I lasted there a little bit, then got the sack. And then um, in 2004, um, a little radio station called SEN opened up and I got, the, I got a gig there in the afternoon. So it kind of just catapulted from there. And then I got a gig at, gig at Channel 7. Um yeah, so it just it just happened, but you know, people think, oh, you just walk in the media. It's not easy. You've got to you got to do a lot of prep, and you've got to do a lot of work, and you've got to really, you know, knuckle down and and make sure you know what you're talking about. So uh, I had a great time at SEN. I, I loved it, and then you know, I got sacked by Craig Hutchison, um, which was really really disappointing. I, I thought that we had something really good going. Um, you know, we we're rating you know, four times what they're rating now. And, um, yeah, that was a real kick in the guts. And then I got an opportunity at Macquarie Sports, and I'm still there now. So, yeah, everything's going along. Everything's going along nicely. I've got a, I've got a business outside of that as well. And, you know, that doesn't happen if you're gambling. So, um, you know, everything's started, has fallen into place for me. But, you know, even through the reconstructions, even through the media, you still got to work really hard. And, you know, I think one of the... The other lessons is if you don't work hard, you don't get anywhere. So you've got to work hard if whatever you want to do. Um, otherwise, it just falls over. So I'm working hard at what we're doing at the moment, and hopefully it pays off. Exactly, mate. And that show with SEN with, with Mark Allen, um, obviously one of my dad's favourite shows as well. I remember every time <laughs> I was in the car with him, that was just blasting through the, through the um, radio. You and Marco seem like you're actually genuine mates. Is that true? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we play a lot of golf together. We we got a, we do do a show on Saturday nights now, and uh, we're going into business together. Um, 
and I don't think you've heard the end of us on radio regularly. It'll it'll continue on, and there's some uh, things in the pipeline that we're doing at the moment, which is which is great. You know, we're we're, we're so different. You know, he's a golfer. He's a he's a selfish individual sportsman. Uh, <laughs> I'm from a team environment, um, but. You know, we I love playing golf. Um, it's a great passion, but he's a good bloke, you know, and he's had his battles. You know, I want to I want to stress that I've never met a tougher, uh, more, and he talk about optimism. He's just been unbelievable since he was diagnosed with bowel cancer and lung cancer, and for him to fight the way through it has just been unbelievable. So <clears throat> I kind of get a little bit emotional when I speak about Mark because he's been such a good mate and um, such a such a bloody good friend. Uh, for a long time and you know I just wish him all the very very best in his recovery because good people need good luck and he needs a bit of luck definitely mate and uh, hopefully when it all works out if you need a producer let me know Um, I'm a (laughs) budding media producer at the moment so I'm on with Rex uh, at footy nightline so make sure the the doors will open up you just got to as I said to you before you just got to work really hard and you know, just keep knocking on doors because um, eventually one will open and you'll get an opportunity. So, um, no, no, I'm sure you'll do. You'll, you'll have no problems getting in and eventually staying in there. Appreciate that, mate. And just to finish up, mate, I do want to talk about um, your family and your wife in particular. Um, obviously, doing the research, um, it's been immense, you know, the, the impact that she's had on your life and the amount that she's probably helped you through. Um, to hear, you know, some of the strategies she was going through to get you off uh, off the punt and the things that she would go through. How important has she been on this journey? Uh, look, I think with anything, you, you need you need people in your corner that, that are actually going to give you the right information, that aren't going to, you know, fluff your ties and, you know, tell you how good you are. And, you know, anyone can have a Don King, you know. You know and I think, a lot of, I think a lot of athletes get surrounded by people that just want to tell them how good they are rather than telling them the truth. So... So when you find someone who can actually hit you between the eyes with good or bad information, give you feedback that is correct feedback, that is accurate feedback and without the bullshit associated with it, I, I think that the trust factor becomes really, really important. Um, I just had a lot of people hanging around me that were just dickheads, that were just, you know, that were no good. And the, the one thing that Karen did say to me, Dylan, and, and I still laugh about this, um, she chooses my friends now. And I'll tell you why, because I have a dickhead attractor. If there is a dickhead in the room, I'll become friends with that person. So, so you what sound Karen a lot like my dad. She... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, look, I do know Jim. Um, so I'm not, I'm not having a crack at Jim. But um, so she goes, I'm choosing your friends now because every every person you bring home, woman, bloke, whoever, is a dickhead. So, so Karen's Karen's chosen, you know, all our friends of late, which is which is good. <laughs> Um, but her point is that she, she goes, what you, what you think is a good quality often isn't. And you are getting caught up in, you're getting caught up in, you know, trusting too many people and not actually seeing the bullshit that the people can deliver. So it, it's taken me a long time to realize that. But normally she's, normally she's right, unfortunately. And I've got to cop it. But yeah, you know, you know, your wife's been really, really important to you. And, you know, I'm here today because of where, and if you know, and what she's been able to do and guide me through it, and you know, one little story is, you know, when I gave up gambling, we had no money. Um, I had to, I had to um, bring the car home. She'd fill it up. I'd drive off. Um, so for four and a half years, she filled my car up with petrol because she feared that if I had money in my pocket, that I'd gamble it. So that was the sort of dedication that she had in making sure, you know, that I didn't fall over. So. It was just those little things that she put in place that that you know helped and you know you know enabled me to be 15 years clean. No, oh, she's a superstar, mate. And uh, Ox, I cannot thank you enough for your time today, mate. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, again, I've I've learned so much, and I know a lot of people out there have um, to see how your sort of story's gone from from footy to to gambling to media and, and how you've bounced back and how you're still going strong today mate it's, a, it's an inspiration and you should be super proud of yourself and um, yeah I can't thank you enough for your time so thanks again for coming on the show no no I, I appreciate it and Dil just one quick one on your dad I was um, I was living in Sunbury I was a 11 year old and a friend of mine said come to the come to the Footscray market um, <laughs> he was a uh, he was a lift uh, what yeah. do I call it a um a forklift driver. Yep. 
he said, come in there with me for the night and, uh, you know, we'll work all night and uh, you might meet some people. Anyway, I get in there, the first bloke I met was Jimmy Buckley. He yeah. shook my hand. I thought, oh, my God, he's going to break my hand. And then I got told that he played for Carlton. I thought, oh, my God, I'm not washing my hand ever, ever again. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. And I remember going home that day at 9 o'clock in the morning and I slept pretty much for 10 hours. And when I woke up, I said, Mum, you wouldn't believe this, but I met Jimmy Buckley. And, um, yeah, I've never forgotten it. Great, great handshake, and uh, what a fine footballer he was too. He's a great, a great footballer. No, it's incredible, mate. I was actually chatting to Luke Shuey about that in my in an episode earlier on. You just, I think, you forget when you're older when you meet someone how much impact they actually have on you when you're a young bloke. Like, I think I met Luke Shuey when when he was in year twelve and I was in year seven, and I just still to this day it was one of the best things that's ever happened. You don't forget it. You, you don't forget. You, you don't forget it. Growing up, and you know, I was a Hawthorne supporter, but my stepdad back for Carlton, so I had to go to Carlton games. And you know, I got, I got to, I got to, you know, pat um, Mike Fitzpatrick on the back, and I sat next to Des English's brother in the stands. Um, you know, Carlton became. You know, I remember meeting Rod Ashman at a um, at a one of those kids' clinics on a Saturday morning. You know, they, they were my idols, and then I got to meet Michael Tuck which I couldn't believe because I was playing Carlton that day. And I thought, gee, how many pimples have you got, Tucky? <laughs> Michael Tucky had a lot of acne. And I never thought he'd have pimples. And I thought, wow, he's got pimples. And, you know, but they're the memories you remember. And that was 40 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I think, you know, for those that have met AFL players, that's why, you know, actually being nice to the kids, you know, and there's a lot of bullfed players out there. Civility costs nothing. Just be nice, even if it's going to take up a bit of your time. Just do the right thing because it might be the one memory that they have and it wants to be a good one. It doesn't want to be a bad memory. Yeah, exactly. And I think about that now for me, like not being a player anymore. It's something you actually miss, even though sometimes it was looked at as a bit of a chore. You know, doing those clinics and seeing what you can do for the kids sometimes, it's actually, you know, something yeah. you look back on. You change fondly. lives. You yeah. change lives, absolutely. Ox, thanks again, mate. You're too generous. Um, I can't wait to catch up when this is all over and hopefully have a couple of um, couple cordials. Good on you, Dill. Keep up the great work and uh, look forward to seeing you in the media down the down the future in the future. Good work. Thanks, Ox. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. The show is produced by Dylan Buckley and Luca Ganano. Richard Stansbury looks after the audio and editing. Samuel Kenny Creative is responsible for branding and graphic design. And the show is recorded at 3AW Studios, Collins Street, Melbourne. If you would like to contact my son, head to dylanfriends.com or look me up in the white pages and I'll pass it on. Listener.